So citizens of heaven. We've been talking about this since February. And what Paul has been drilling into us as we've worked our way through each passage of this book is that citizens of a kingdom are called to reflect the image and likeness or the rule and reign of their king. In other words, our job and our calling, both individually and together as a church, is to show the world what God is like. And we do that when we pattern our lives after the one who showed us what the path of human flourishing truly looks like. A path of humble submission, sacrifice, and love. And what we're promised, and what we've also experienced, is that this path of humble submission, sacrifice, and love truly is the only path that leaves us filled with God's peace, confidence, and contentment. There was a documentary that came out back in 2018 called The Biggest Little Farm. Has anyone ever seen that? The Biggest Little Farm. If you haven't seen that, you should definitely watch it. It's a beautiful documentary. It's a story of a family who decided to leave behind a particular way of life to pursue their dream of organic and sustainable farming. And this documentary travels with them through their journey and what they learn is that in order for them to produce the most nutritious and most delicious produce, meat and dairy, they had to accommodate or better submit themselves to the way in which nature works rather than imposing their own will upon it. In other words, the world is set up in such a way that produces fruit. We can either submit ourselves to that way or we can take our own path, which might lead to some instant gratification but ultimately ends in destruction. What we've been challenged with over the course of this series is that heavenly citizenship is marked by humble submission, sacrifice, and love. And while that might rub against everything we're taught and everything we perceive to be true about the world, it is the pattern of God's creation. It is the pattern of God's creation. Sure, we can produce massive amounts of corn and eat tomatoes during every season of the year by over-farming large plots of land and using all sorts of chemicals and pesticides, but we've all experienced the flavor of that tomato we pick off the vine in mid to late July, grown either in your own home garden or from a local farm stand. And I don't know about you, but quality seems to be produced when we humbly submit ourselves to the pattern set forth by God and his creation rather than our own wills. Now that everybody's dreaming about a fresh tomato salad. The problem that we encounter, I guess what I'm trying to say, and what I believe Paul has been saying to us throughout this letter is that when we submit ourselves to the heavenly rule and reign of God, what we are doing is living in the way God intended the world to be from creation. And to do so, while it is difficult and oftentimes leads to suffering, it's also the only path that leads to true and lasting flourishing. 
The problem we encounter when we try to bring the rule and reign of heaven here on earth is that we are bringing something that is unrecognizable. It's the reason why Jesus was crucified and why truly patterning our lives after Christ leads to persecution and suffering. To be human in an inhumane world is to subject ourselves to the same consequences experienced by Jesus. I want you to wrap your minds around that for a little bit. To be human in an inhumane world subjects ourselves to the same consequences that Jesus experienced. What do I mean by that? Well, Jesus is the one who truly embodied what it meant to be human. He's the one who picked up where Adam left off, where Adam failed when he disobeyed God. The image of God was, was broken and marred, and it was unrecognizable at that particular point in time. But Jesus came at the exact right time, and he showed the world what humanity was supposed to look like. And what happened? He was killed for it. He was killed for it. But that's what we're being called to as followers of Jesus, to be truly human. And we can only do that when we submit ourselves to King Jesus. And that's what we've been talking about over the last few months. This idea of being a citizen of heaven is to embody what we saw laid out for us in Philippians chapter 2. The one who was in the form of God but did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be exploited for his own gain, but rather he made himself in the likeness of man, becoming a slave, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so that's been the, the crux of what we've been looking at over the last number of months. And so let's jump into our text and, and see what God has for us this morning. Our first point, a, a fragrant and acceptable offering. Verses 14 through 17, to kind of break up this passage a little bit, it says, Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. So a couple of things as we look at verses 14 through 17 before we continue on. It, this word yet or, or nevertheless begins our passage. It's Paul's way of getting back to the main point of this particular section, which is his rejoicing that he brings up in verse 10 that Scott Stangley dealt with last week. Rejoicing that the Philippians, his crown and joy, remembered him. In other words, Paul's happy that they sent a gift with Epaphroditus. Not so much because he received a gift, although he needed that, but it made him feel loved. Like, in all honesty, that's kind of what he's getting at here. Paul felt the love of the Philippians through the gift that was presented to him through Epaphroditus. And let's be honest, like, we all need affirmation at times. Like, sometimes we, we think Paul is like Superman, but no, Paul's a dude. Paul's a man, 
And so he responds to things in the same way we would respond to things. But there's more, and we're going to get to that. But so what he's doing is he's expressing his gratitude to them for sharing in his trouble, for sharing in his trouble. That has showed up so much in this letter. The idea of participating and sharing in the pain and suffering of one another. And and again, we've experienced this. Not only are we taught it in the text, but we've experienced the the wonder and, and awe that we feel when someone shares in our pain. When they get into the pit with us. When they pray for us. When they walk with us through a difficult season. We feel the prayers of our brothers and sisters. That's something, something, something's real there because not only does the text, I love when this happens, right? When the text says something and we've experienced it, it's like, oh, that's so cool. Thank you, Jesus. But we've been there. We know what that's like. He says it was kind of you. One commentator says that what he's saying is equivalent to, uh, you did good, kid, right? Like, you did good. You did good here. There's a sense of pride in Paul's heart, not the bad kind. His deposit in the life of this church is paying off. There's financial language all over this section. In other words, they're doing the very thing he instructed them. They're embodying the good news of Jesus. They're living in a manner worthy of the gospel. They are citizens of heaven. They are citizens of heaven. Paul continues to praise the Philippians. He says, No church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. What Paul is saying is that the Philippians not only received the gospel from Paul, but they put that deposit to work. They put that deposit to work. I'm reminded of the parable of the talents that Jesus shares in in the gospel of Matthew. Where there, were, where there were three people who were given talents, who were given money, basically. And the first two invested it wisely, but the last one took it and buried it because he was fearful. And, and Jesus has harsh words for that individual. Because a, a gift was deposited to him, and he squandered, not even squander it, but he didn't use it. He didn't put it to work. In other words, God has called us into a relationship with him. He's called us into a relationship with one another in church, in in the local body of Christ. He saved us from our sins, forgiven us, granted us the beautiful gift of eternal life for those who bend our knee to King Jesus. And now what he's saying, now go put it to work. Let the gospel that has saved you go forth. Let it change you. Submit yourself to it so that you might reflect the rule and reign of God, so that you might show the world what God is like, so that you might live worthy of the manner in which you've been called. That we might be citizens of heaven. And this is why Paul makes it clear that it was not the gift that he was seeking, but the fruit that increases to their credit. It was not the gift that he was seeking. The point, and what the text is getting at, at, is that in receiving this gift of the gospel of Jesus Christ that Paul imparted to them, not only did they receive it and experience it, but they put it to work, they lived it out, and they lived it out by sacrificially giving. By sacrificially giving. I, I want to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 
And, and I believe I have a slide for this. Now, if you remember, the Philippians were part of the Macedonian church. We talked about this way back in February. But it says here in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 5, Paul is writing this letter as well to the church in Corinth. He says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. And grace, what Paul's doing here is really cool. He's basically taking money and replacing it with the word grace, which is really fascinating. But that's a, that's a sermon for another day. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints." And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. What's happening in that passage is that Paul is commending the Macedonian church, part of which were the Philippians, for their generosity. But it's not just generosity, it's sacrificial generosity. See, the Philippians gave to their own hurt. That's the kind of church that they were becoming because they took the deposit of the gospel, they allowed it to, to completely, completely shift their entire way of life so that they could be a conduit of God's grace to others in the world. And they did it sacrificially. They did it sacrificially. The title of our sermon this morning is Citizens Are Stewards. And what I mean by this is that those of us who have been adopted into the family of God by the grace and mercy of Christ through the power of his spirit, we no longer belong to ourselves because we have been bought with a price. We belong to God. We belong to one another. And everything we possess belongs to God and has been entrusted to us to use for his glory. Now immediately, most of us bristle at this sort of idea, myself included. Sure, I'm all about belonging to God. Check, I'm in. I can, I can even swallow this whole being in community thing. Like, I like hanging out with you guys. It's fun. Belonging to one another, that feels like, ooh, that's, that's a lot. But the reason why we bristle at this sort of idea is because this is an example of the rule and reign of Jesus coming into conflict with the broken pattern of this world. And when that happens, there's sparks. A couple of things. Paul is in the midst of unpacking a celebration, right? He's rejoicing. He provides us with the reasons why he is celebrating, right? The first one, he feels remembered and loved by the Philippians. Second, but more important, he's celebrating that they understand, that they get it. There's fruit increasing to their credit, to their account. They are walking with Jesus, and he is ecstatic. And the proof of their faithfulness is found in their humble submission, sacrifice, and love for him and also for the impoverished church in Jerusalem. 
And that shows up in their willingness to financially give beyond their means. The point, citizens of heaven embody heavenly ideals. And heavenly ideals will always come into conflict with the ideals of a fallen world. To be a Christian is to be a giver, a giver of time, talent, and treasure. So I want to talk a little bit about financial giving. And I'm always skittish to talk about these things because, because so often these verses have been used to exploit people in the church. And, and that is not my goal here. I just, my job is to teach. My job is to show you what the scriptures say and to apply it to our lives. And so a couple things, right? To be perfectly honest, I'm speaking independently right now, and I'm sure there are disagreements on this. I don't think the Old Testament tithe is the standard we're called to live out as the new covenant people of God. I know there's disagreement here, and that's fine. It's totally fine. The tithe, or the 10% requirement, is a standard that was upheld by the Mosaic Covenant. But what I believe we are called to, and this is outlined in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, is to give generously, sacrificially, and joyfully. To give generously, sacrificially, and joyfully. In other words, our giving habits should have an impact on how we live our lives, what we buy, how we vacation, Whatever we spend our money on, it should be affected and impacted by how we live our lives in the body of Christ, how we spend our money in the body of Christ. I think for some of this, it might be more than 10%. For some of us, it might be more than 10%. While for others, it might be a little less. But the point is generosity, joy, and sacrifice. That's what God calls us to. That is the heavenly ideal that comes into conflict with the pattern of this fallen world. And that's not, I, I, there is in no way are we, am I meaning to shame anyone. In fact, we have a generous church. We have an incredibly generous church. I don't know if you know, um, I think the numbers were a little off last week, but we, we were able to raise $8,000 for, for Czech Republic, for, for Ukrainian refugees, in a matter of, I don't know, Lee, how many weeks? Like a couple, three or four weeks, we raised eight grand. Like, we're a generous church. And so this is by no means um, any sort of condemnation or shame. It's me trying to just teach you what the scriptures are, are, are saying. And so I know there's disagreement about the tithe thing, and that's fine. Um, we can talk about it later. No worries. But, um, but th that's my view, and, and that's fine. Um, but the point that Paul is getting at and what he is celebrating is that the good news of Jesus and his kingdom has taken root in the lives of this church. And they are living out the master story of Philippians chapter 2. They are living as citizens of heaven. It's affected their lives. And that's the question we need to wrestle with. Has this good news affected our lives? Has it changed the way we live? Has it changed the way we make decisions? Has it changed our habits, our spending habits, our media consumption habits, our political habits? Whatever the case may be, has it changed us? 
That's what we all need to wrestle with. And everyone is on a different part of their journey. We're all traveling towards the same goal, but we're at different points in our journey. And it's not to say that one point of the journey is better than another point of the journey, because there are plenty of things that I have probably matured in that others maybe have not, but then I look at them and they're like, wow, they're a lot more mature than me in that way area, so I gotta figure that out. And that's, that's what this thing is, and that's why we do it together as the body of Christ. But the text continues, verses 18 through 20. Let me read it here. It says, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. So a couple things. Their gift has made him whole, right? He is supplied. He's good. But more importantly, their gift is a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. That language should evoke Old Testament images in our mind. It's lifted directly from passages that talk about priestly sacrifices to God rising up in the nostrils of Yahweh. What Paul is saying is that their gift is not only beneficial to him, but it is pleasing to God. It gives God pleasure. It gives God pleasure. When we live in a manner worthy of the gospel, when we are humble and submit ourselves to one another and we love one another sacrificially, God is pleased by that. But not like it pleases me. He takes joy in it. Like if if you're a parent and and, and you hear of your child doing something well, like when they're not with you, right? Because kids, although I don't know, sometimes kids feel like it's easier to misbehave in front of you. I don't know the dynamics. Um, But when you hear that they did something kind, generous, wonderful, and lovely, unprovoked, outside of your purview, when you hear about that, I mean, that just brings joy. There's that like, oh, man, I'm so proud of my kid right now. The way he treated such and such or so and so, like, oh my gosh, that's such an amazing, you, you well up. That's what that's, that's what that's getting at there. That's what that's getting at. That, that God wells up with joy when he hears that his kids are doing well. Why does it please God? Because when we, by the power of the Spirit, embody the rule and reign of heaven here on earth, when we pattern our lives after the master story of King Jesus, regardless of the consequences, because there are consequences, God's name is being made known. His light is overtaking darkness, and new creation is seeping into the brokenness of this world, filling in the cracks and drawing more unto himself. Remember, it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. And he uses us to show off his kindness. He uses us to do that. It's a privilege that we have. It's a joy that we have. It's a challenge also. Because like I said, it comes into conflict with the pattern 
that we have been taught about how life should work. Now on the flip side, it's also why God despises hypocrisy so much. It's why we need to be careful where we place our allegiance. My heart has been so broken over the last couple of weeks, as I'm sure all of ours has. The shooting in Buffalo, the shooting in Texas. My heart breaks for the loss of life, for the devastation to these communities, to these families. But it also breaks because whether it's from the left or from the right, I don't know if I got that right, it's all being used to further a political agenda. And as Christians, we need to be careful. We need to be careful not to get caught up in this, regardless of our opinions, because we all have opinions, but it doesn't really matter. Our allegiance is to Christ, to a king, to a kingdom. We are citizens of heaven. We need to be careful. We need to watch how we walk, how we speak, what we post what we consume, because it's so easy to get caught up. Another devastating event for the church, and maybe you guys haven't even heard about this, is, is this report that came out about the Southern Baptist Convention's executive committee and how for decades they were complicit in covering up sexual abuse. This is devastating news. This is hypocrisy of the highest level. This is the opposite of living as citizens of heaven. And so our response to all this, once again, it's humble submission, sacrifice, and love. It's to be different. It's to embody the ideals of heaven. It's to fight the temptation to jump on bandwagons and pattern ourselves after a broken world. Maybe it means pausing and praying before speaking or before posting. I was wrestling with this morning, with this this morning. How would Paul urge the American church to live as citizens of heaven in all of this? What rebukes would he have for us? What would he call us to repent of? Where have we accepted worldly ideals over heavenly ones? And all of us have to varying degrees. But we need to allow the Spirit of God and the people of God to help us and the Word of God to help us navigate through this world. That's why he gave us the church. And that's what I love about our church because we do talk to one another. We do challenge one another. I, I hear so many incredible stories coming out of community groups. We care for one another well. We're a generous church. And so this is by no means a rebuke. This is, this is a challenge to continue moving in that direction. Continue allowing the Spirit of God, the good news of Jesus, to shape us individually and corporately as the body of Christ. And so Paul closes this section with a promise. He says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. See, Paul first indicates that his needs were supplied by the Philippians. He then indicates that their needs will be supplied by God. It almost feels like he's trying to cop out on something. It's like, it's like thank you for your gift. God will take care of you. Um, that's not what's happening. That's not what's happening. It feels like that a little bit. Or maybe it didn't, and I just made it feel that way. Um, what Paul is trying to articulate is the very thing we've been talking about for the last number of months. 
God provides for his people through his people. God provides for his people through his people. Why? Because everything is his and we are his stewards. Citizens are stewards. We are called to take the good things that God has provided us with and use them for the glory of Christ and the good of our neighbors. In a world that revolves around what's mine, this is truly countercultural. Let me read from you from Acts chapter 2. It says in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 and following, this is the very beginning of the church, and I believe I have this on the slide. It's the very beginning of the church. The Spirit of God is poured out at Pentecost. Thousands of people are being saved daily. It's, it's a wild time. And then it says this in verse 42. It says, those thousands um, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And, and what I love about this passage, it's, it's, it's beautiful, right? It's something that we've all heard preached. We've all aspired to it. We all want that. It's one of those things that you look at and it's just like you kind of like float away with unicorns. You're like, that is so beautiful. I want a piece of that. Um, but yet, when we actually are called to embody this, it's hard because, again, we live in a world where we are taught that what's mine is mine. And the minute we start talking about belonging to one another, belonging to God, we're a little like, whoa, 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 whoa. take it easy. Like I said, I love to hang out with everybody, but do I belong to you? Yes. That's what the scriptures teach. Now, this isn't easy I am encouraged that I see this taking place in our church. Absolutely. Again, this is by no means to shame us as a people. God is doing wonderful things here at Redeemer Fellowship. And it's really cool to hear stories and to be a part of what's happening. But we keep growing. We keep maturing. We keep allowing the word of God and the spirit of God and the people of God to challenge us and move us nearer and nearer to him. And that's what we're dealing with. Then closes out this section, which is really interesting. I love it. Those of Caesar's household. It's a standard greeting. Let me just read it really quick. Verses 21 through 23. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. A fairly standard greeting. Paul encourages them to remain bonded to one another. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. He encourages them with the support of those brothers and sisters who are with them. He's basically saying, he's like, he's like everyone here is super psyched about you. Everyone here is, is just, they love what you're doing. Keep it up. And then he says this weird thing. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Now, a household in in the, in, in, in the ancient world was basically, it was more than just your family. It was, it was your servants. It was your slaves. It was, it was everyone that you had attached to you in, in your household. Um, and, and the household of Caesar extended 
beyond Rome because Caesar was the emperor of the entire Roman Empire. And so his household was a bit larger than all of ours, right? And so I was, um, I'm reminded of, we were watching The Gilded Age. It's this show on HBO, and it's, uh, it's basically about the, um, you know, 1800s New York City, and it's fascinating. It's like the high society world, and, and people had like, you know, household servants, and they also, and the household servants were downstairs, and it's very similar if you watched um, Downton Abbey, and, and then they had places like out in Newport, Rhode Island, where they had other servants and things like that, and so their household extended beyond their four walls. Now, I don't have that particular household. I imagine none of us in this room have that particular kind of household, but Caesar did. But what's really interesting, what I think is going on here, is what one New Testament scholar, Mark Bachmuel, says. He says, concealed behind this seemingly harmless greeting is a powerful symbol of the day when, even in Rome, the seat of imperial power, every knee shall bow to Christ. It's a beautiful reminder that while it might appear that Caesar is Lord, Jesus sits on the throne. Paul's basically saying, I got, I got people where you don't even expect I have people. Let me rephrase that. Jesus has people where you, won't even, you don't even expect it. Because his kingdom is moving and expanding little by little and taking over. That's what Paul is trying to convey when he says, even all in Caesar's household. He's like, guys, God is in control. He's on the throne. Rest easy and trust yourselves to him. Continue to embody the ideals of the heavenly kingdom because that is truly where power resides. That's what he's getting at here. And so as we close out, as we think about what this means for us on the Jersey Shore, Over the course of this series, we've learned a lot about what it means to live as citizens of heaven, to let our manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. A couple of things. Citizens are humble. This means that we do not seek to make ourselves known, but to make the name of Christ known. It's not about our rights. It's not about our desires. It's not about our political opinions, but rather it is about submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Citizens are generous. This means that we are to take what God has given us and use it for the good of others. I've seen this on full display in our church. As both a recipient and as an observer, we take care of one another. We give of our time, talent, and treasure. Citizens are loving. Loving in the sense of the love that Jesus displayed on the cross. It's that agape sort of love, that self-sacrificial love that enters in. We enter into the brokenness of one another, of our neighbors. We allow their mess to get on us because that is how Christ loved us. Incarnationally, he entered into flesh. That's how we love. I believe it starts here with the people that are in this room. 
It's practicing humility, generosity, and sacrificial love with one another in our community groups, on our ministry teams. It means living that way with your neighbors, with your family, wherever you might have online communities. This is part of our discipleship, or as one author puts it, our apprenticeship to Jesus. And then I believe it will start spilling over into all aspects of our lives. We are not done talking about heavenly citizenship. In fact, I see this as a building block for our church, something that we are going to come back to regularly. So a couple things. Where are we heading? Well, over the summer, we're going to explore other aspects of our citizenship as we begin digging into what has historically been referred to as the spiritual disciplines or spiritual formation. This is going to be an introduction. And we're going to be challenged. Chances are we'll stumble our way through it. But God's grace is sufficient. We're going to cover things like prayer and fasting. It means not eating. It's hard. Study, service, mission, and evangelism. Simplicity and solitude, giving. Now, there are more. But like I said, this is an introduction. I have been on my own journey of late trying to wrap my mind around the practices that Christians have used throughout church history. And what I've discovered and what we'll discover together as we work through this all is that when we practice these habits by faith, we will draw near to God, both individually and corporately as a church. And what we'll discover is that doing so will take time, sacrifice, humility, and one another. In other words, similar to what we were confronted with throughout our time in Philippians, to live as citizens, as a citizen of heaven, in the brokenness of this world is difficult. It takes time, sacrifice, and humility. But in the same way, the most delicious tomatoes take patience, cultivation, care, and sacrifice, so do so too does our own spiritual formation, both individually and together as a church. Like I said, I've been on my own journey, so I'm not standing here as someone who has mastered these things, but someone who is walking along the same path. And so I'm excited for what the summer has for us. I'm excited for the next season of our church as we continue working out our salvation together in fear, with fear and trembling, allowing the Spirit of God to move in and through us, changing us, conforming us to the pattern of Christ. And so I want to close by just reading that master story from Philippians chapter 2. He says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who because he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If you don't know that Jesus, I would challenge you and encourage you to consider him before you leave here today. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we love you. 
We thank you for your grace. We thank you for this calling that you have placed upon us. Father, you are so good. So good, Lord. Be with us, Lord. Help us to walk in faithfulness. Help us to pattern ourselves both individually and together as a church after the person and work of your son Jesus, Lord God. The one who was truly human, who lived faithfully amidst so much division, so much pushback, suffering, and ultimately death, death on a cross, Lord God. It's in his name we pray. Amen.